0: Gentle teacher, be patient with us as we turn again to your word. Give us clarity and peace of mind to hear, understand, receive, and follow the leading this passage may impart in words and in groanings deeper and truer than what human language can convey. Now let's hear from Ephesians 4:22 through 29. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: How dramatic this entrance is. (laughs) For those of you who don't know me, I can be this dramatic. Uh, My name is Mike St. Dennis, I'm the associate pastor here at All Souls welcome to you we're so glad to have you with us as we come into worship today Uh, we are in a study on the the practice of simplicity and our topic this morning is simplicity of speech Uh, and believe me the irony is not lost on me that i am the one up here talking about simplicity of speech Um, i think i have three more pages with me than i normally have but we're gonna do our best to not go through all of them, which is in part the stool, um, so that we can have a more laid-back way of going about it. Before we get any further into this, would you just pause and pray with me? There's a great deal of pastoral needs in our community, a lot of hurt and pain, and so we just want to bring those before the Lord. God, we know that you are both the great physician of our bodies and of our hearts and souls. And so we remember this morning those who have experienced uh, loss, thinking this week of our friend Amy and our friend Jessica and their families at the loss of dear loved ones. And we know, God, precious in your sight uh, is the death and the suffering of your saints. We know, too, God, that there is a great deal of sickness, both the ordinary kind and the kind that stops you in your tracks. And so we pray for healing, especially for those who have begun cancer treatments this last week, for Lynn and for Nikki and for others. We pray, God, that you would comfort them and reveal your presence to them, to the doctors, to each of us, Lord, that we would know that you are at work to make us whole in Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, we commend these things to you, trusting that you are able and faithful in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So again, simplicity, I have to tell you that a lot of the uh, theological influences that Stephen and myself, and many of our other leaders in the church, sort of the, the, sh- the ponds that we swim in, the circles that we run into, it is not uncommon for simplicity to be set forth as a practice. Uh, and so I routinely go along and I'm like, I know exactly what we're talking about. And then when it was time to prepare for this message, I thought, I don't have a clue what simplicity means or looks like as a practice. Uh, But simplicity is something that, uh, especially when you look at the New Testament and the early church fathers, really most theologians up until the Dark Ages and the Enlightenment that follows, uh, you see simplicity always being set forth as a value, a practice, a virtue, and a reality of what God is bringing into our lives. I like the way that Richard Foster puts it in his seminal work, Celebration of Disciplines. Simplicity is the state and the product of abiding in the divine center, in the heart of God. So in other words, simplicity is the practice of remaining with Jesus, keeping our heads and our hearts the stories we tell ourselves Um, in the reality and the truth of the gospel. It's a practice of always opening ourselves up to say, what is true about this, not just from my perspective, but what is God saying about this, and what is God doing about it in the person and work of Jesus? It's a way that we stay at home with him, sort of allowing and, and intentionally choosing to let some of the distractions, the things that draw us away, letting them go, coming back to that simple faith, to be with Jesus and be made new in him. Um, So it's a practice, a way of staying in God's heart, abiding and remaining in him, but it's also the fruit of abiding and remaining in him. As we learn to trust Jesus, what he says of the world, of us, of others, we come to learn to trust him even more and more, and that's born in the fruit of even more trust, of returning to him often, faster, more deeply than we did before, opening ourselves up to the fruit of his presence and his goodness, both to find our own satisfaction and have something to share and offer with the world around us. So how do we take that abiding and remaining practice and the fruit that comes, what does it look like as we apply it to our speech Uh, There's over 100 verses that have kind of direct explicit commands or instructions about how important our words are. One of them is Proverbs 18.21 that says in, in no neutral or insignificant terms, your tongue, the words you say, the thought patterns you practice have the power to kill and destroy or to cultivate new life. The stories that we tell ourselves, the words that we use, even the silence that we practice, all of these things have the power either to kill or destroy, to bear good fruit or to bear the fruit of destruction. But it's not just the fruit that we see in the Bible. Jesus talks about the fruit revealing something greater. In Matthew 15, he says, it is not what goes into us, but what comes out of us that defiles us. Our words, our actions, our attitudes, our preferences, they flow from an internal state of being. And when we abide and remain in Jesus, when we receive his his hope and gospel, we internalize the truth and the grace of the gospel. But then, and we see it come out and start to shape and change us. You can see it come out of you and see that fruit that you know comes from being in the center, abiding in him. But it's not all that comes out, too. The fruit that comes out of us also shows the condition of our hearts. Places where we have yet to internalize his grace and truth. And even places where those, the work of the kingdom just has yet to break into the world. And so Jesus teaches us our words are really important. And we ought to pay attention to them. And the invitation, even though words and all the pieces behind them and our actions can be very complicated and sophisticated, we are meant to abide in the story of Jesus, to live in the gospel hope and the reality of God's goodness, and to offer and live that out in each different setting that we might find ourselves in. Our passage here today walks that out a little bit more, and especially in the context of, church relationships. The book of Ephesians, Paul is setting forth the hope of the gospel, the reality of the gospel, our great need and sin and brokenness, and God's sufficiency in Jesus to meet that need. And what Paul points to in Ephesians chapter 4 is his thesis statement that God is at work to take us from the ways of the world, the stories, the patterns, the schemes, the sin and brokenness that's all around us, that corrupts us and pulls us away from the divine center, away from our home, and that in speaking truth and love with one another and receiving Jesus' truth and love, we can, instead of being pulled apart, we can be brought together into full unity and maturity, right? The hope of the gospel is that God is restoring us to himself, He's restoring us in our relationship with our own selves and the stories we tell, restoring us in relationship with others and with the world. And the primary mechanism that Paul sets forth for this is speaking truth in love, putting off deceitful talk, unwholesome talk, things that we'll get into. But as we heard in our passage at the beginning as well, Paul is talking about a difference between the old self, the language and the stories that are less than helpful, the things that defile us and putting on the new self, putting on Christ's righteousness, abiding in his righteousness to look at it and receive it for ourselves, that it might shape and change us. And Paul says that it is a necessity to be <coughs> to be in a community that is practicing and telling that story. And now this just makes sense from our own, from our own experiences. So in your life, you are not just the product of your actions, the, the speech that you calculate and craft or the silence that you participate in. You didn't just wake up and, and be that way. And when you were birthed into this world, you came into a world and into a community that was shaped by sin and brokenness. And in that, you inherited all kinds of different ideas and scripts and values about the world. I routinely um, encounter things in relationships with others. In my family, it was very comfortable to fight and argue all the time and use a lot of words. And then when I encounter somebody who says, you know, it's it's really, it's the best thing is to sort of avoid conflict. Let's not fight about it. That's not going to get anywhere good. And I'm like, well, that's not my experience. But again, not all my experience is good either. But we've been shaped and formed by our cultures. I can still hear my mom's voice saying, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. And so what Paul is saying is that if we're going to see God's work come to change those things that have been implanted in us by community and experiences, we've got to counter that by being part of a new community that's telling a newer and better story, and to stay there long enough until that truth and love builds us up into maturity. So Paul here is outlining that that speaking truth and love is the way that we get built up. It's the mechanism, the practice that leads us forward, but it is also the fruit and the mark of what God is doing in building us up together. We need both truth and love. Again, we know this from our experience. As you look at the world around us, there is a lot of conversations about what is truth. Um, You think about, like, what kinds of news sources do you trust now? Does anybody have the truth? I think the uh, uh, the best orientation that I've encountered with people is you just try to find a couple who can balance each other out. And if you have all these different people that are lying, but there's one thing that they're all saying the same, then okay, maybe that's where we found the truth. It's been said uh, by one scholar, in particular uh, Vaclav Havel, who wrote about the rise and fall of communism. That the world cannot exist without truth. When you have a society that has no truth in it, then you cannot trust the politicians, the religious leaders, the people around you. Uh, You have to become suspicious of your neighbors. Uh, even your family and friends uh, become people who report on one another and things like that just to co- sort of improve your life. And, and, and saying that in these societies where the concepts of truth, where there hasn't been any truth, the opportunity for relationships are impossible. And Havel sets forth that the power of the powerless, the people at the bottom that these societies have trampled over, their only power is to speak The truth. In our passage here, what Paul has gotten into so far is in verse 25 we read, Each of you put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor and the members of one body. So, again, how can we have meaningful, deep, intimate relationships with one another if there is not any truth present? The strongest relationships that I have are with people who were around when my capacity to hide the truth ran out. And they saw some of the most consistent things about me that were not the best things about me, and yet they stayed anyway. In that presence to the truth, I felt love, being known and then experiencing love. You cannot be accepted, you cannot experience love without a certain amount of truth. The world just doesn't move forward that way. But it also is true within our own church community. Paul says that we are all members of one body. And this is not talking about church membership, but rather appendages of one body. When I was in college, uh, I had what I refer to as a vestibular meltdown. I was taking some psychology classes at the time as part of my degree. And I was learning about our orientation and balance is affected by many things. So one, you're oriented from your muscles communicating signals and declaring sort of which way is up. You're oriented because of the fluid in your ears and then also visual cues from your body. And your body works together to tell you a picture about where you're at and where you could go. And then I got some sort of ear infection. And after several weeks in the hospital and CAT scans and laying there thinking, I've got a tumor, and then hearing Arnold Schwarzenegger say, it's not a tumor. <laughs> uh, eventually, we figured out that by the, the fluid in my ears and my eyes and my muscles were all telling a different story. They didn't operate in the same level of truth. And the consequence of it was that I could not stand, I could not open my eyes without becoming violently ill crawling my way to the bathroom with my eyes shut. In our human relationships, when we cannot agree on what truth is, it becomes similarly disorienting and leads to violence and illness in the system. Here at All Souls, as we talk about membership and joining in with one another, we have to have some sort of way to define our relationship together. We believe that the hope of the gospel is that orienting principle that can help our eyes and our muscles and our ears get along and move in the same direction. And that we see that most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ in this gospel message. And one of my favorite summaries of the gospel is this. You are more Broken and sinful than you ever dare think. But you are more loved and accepted than you ever dare dream. In our own experiences, you can sort of focus on part of the truth. And this is what we all do. We tell part of the truth a lot. There is some truth to the things that we say, the lies that we tell, the stories that we've internalized. It isn't good to have conflict all the time. But it is good to bring up difficult things and say some things that may not be nice in a nice way when it's ruining and destroying things. And so the invitation in simplicity is being rooted in Jesus, the complexity of the gospel, the story that can tell the true story, both about our need and God's sufficiency to meet that need. And we want to be a people who tell that story more and more. There's a temptation here in our culture, and there has always been one in the church, to tell the truth, but not with love. And as God has been correcting that in our culture, in our culture here at the church, there's a temptation to love, but to withhold the truth. Over the years, working with people that are experiencing relational conflict, whether in a marriage, with a roommate, with a friend, parents, siblings, children, co-workers, bosses, things like that, a lot of times what happens is, is the, we sort of lose hope that anything can be better, and we lose hope because the things that need saying, the truth that needs sharing, we have no trust that it's going to be heard, that things are going to move forward. And so when we have no confidence that the truth and the love can happen, we settle, for silence, or for violence. We, we hold our tongues and not uh, inviting other people to experience truth with us because we are afraid of losing them. We are afraid of it leading to conflict. Or we uh, turn to violence, telling the truth in order to manipulate, control, move things forward. And any time we end up in one of those two places, we end up out of our communion with Jesus, replacing the story of the gospel with the stories we tell ourselves I think of a father years ago who out of love for his child would never confront them with the difficult things that were going on in their life until they reached adulthood and continued the same activities that frustrated and hurt their family relationships and then I watched for years as those same patterns were repeated and the daughter never knowing why it was that relationships kept falling apart because there was love, but there wasn't any truth. And what this passage teaches us about speech and simplicity is complex and yet simple that we need truth and we need love. So what does this look like? Our passage here, there's all kinds of things you can see in the scripture, talking about idle, careless words, talking about words that are like the thrust of a sword, There's all kinds of different things, but there's two principles about truth and love that we see here in Ephesians. The first is that truth does not deceive, and the second is that love edifies or builds up. Truth does not deceive, and love always edifies. In that Ephesians 4, verse 14 and 15 passage, Paul says that the craftiness, the cunning, The destructive schemes are the things that destroy us and lead us away. The truth is often, or the lies are often more complex. They have to have more parts that go right in order to be effective. Uh, They usually have some amount of truth in them and they carry us away, but there is also a fair amount of deceit. And in verse 29, Paul instructs us to put off this type of speech. Do not let unwholesome talk come from your mouth, but only what's helpful for building up. Put away the lies and the deceit and put on truth in love. Stop making your home in the stories you tell yourself and make your home in the truth and the love of gospel. But what Paul is getting at here as well is that it is uh, so much more than Words. So you know that it's possible to speak the truth and say something that is technically true, but is still deceptive. My son came in the room the other day, and after hearing the commotion, I said, Did you hit your brother? And he said, I will not hit my brother. And I said, That's not what I asked. (laughs) Did you have a cookie? Well, I didn't have a cookie, because I had ten cookies. Love does not deceive. Uh, My favorite, uh, second favorite Presbyterian pastor is Tim Keller, my first being Reverend Dr. Stephen Good. If you see him, tell him I said that. Hey, bud. Uh, And also Shane. (laughs) Hey, bud. But Tim Keller, uh, in a sermon on the same passage, outlines six types of deceptions, untruths, falsehoods that we practice Um, And so hopefully, I don't know if it's hopefully, but realistically, you'll maybe see yourself in one of these places. The first type of of, uh, untruth or deception we practice is political. This is where we are aimed at shaping and controlling what other people think, maintaining reputation. I would love to go. I'm so glad you invited me, but I'm just so busy that day with being at home, not going Exaggerations. When we first got married, our counselor talked to us. uh, They said, always, never, use always and never. (laughs) But growing up with many siblings, we always learn to point out what people are always and never doing. You always do this. You've never done that. Um, And we use that as a means of getting a, a leg up on someone, putting them down. We see you more accurately than you see yourself. And again, it's rooted in some truth. That person has done that before or there are times that they haven't done that. But our exaggeration is about gaining some leverage on them. There's another form here of that exaggeration and this is word inflation. That was so amazing. Oh, it's so wonderful. You have to see it and check it out. It's so unbelievable. Your life will be changed. Hamilton is so good. Uh, I have a friend of mine, Catherine, who's in Colorado now, and for years, Catherine was the physical embodiment of enthusiasm. (laughs) And so everything was always so amazing and so wonderful, and I had what I called sort of the, the Catherine coefficient, that you take whatever she says, and then you like turn it down three notches, and that's probably closer to the truth. And Catherine had a mic coefficient because I tend to exaggerate in the other way. It'll never work. It's so bad. It's so lame. And for that, you had to multiply it positively to a certain degree. What happens when we practice word inflation is that people uh, are robbed of reality of sort of the ordinary plainness of our life. And this too is why Jesus talks about not making vows and swearing on things in order to sort of inflate yourself and conjure up more trust in what you're saying. But he says, just speak plainly. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. The next lie on the list is the benevolent lies. And the quintessential form of this is, honey, do my genes make me look big? For your sake, I'm going to lie, and I think I'm doing something kind and good, not telling you the truth. But again, as we saw in the earlier example, um, that never produces the fruit that you think. Only temporary peacekeeping. It has, doesn't have the ability to make peace. Another lie is the lie of hubris or arrogance, or as Tim Keller calls it, the Watergate lies. And this is when we say things like, you know, the little people just don't need to know this. If you knew this, it would crush you or blow your mind, so it's just better that I don't say anything for you, to you about it. It masquerades as being in the, best, in the best interest of the other, but it fails to deliver. And then finally, the white lies, the common lies, the ordinary lies. Uh, probably you've shared some of these already in the lobby when people say, how is it going this week? It's fine. It's good. We're doing all right. Um, You see this too in business. Uh, One example that I heard was the idea of companies that talk a big game, talk about what they're about. We value the customer. We value quality. Meanwhile, internally, everyone at the company knows that that's not really what's most important. It's not the reality that they live in. It's just the words. And we do this all the time. And with each of these lies, it is not just that we might practice the lie with the things that we say, it's also that we choose not to say. So if you're somebody who's sitting here and it's like, oh, I I never talk all that much, I would never lie in these ways, but regularly you don't say the true things that need to be said, then maybe we're choosing to not do that in one of these forms as well. What we need is the truth that never deceives. But the second piece is that love always edifies. In verse 29, do what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, not your own, that it may benefit those who are listening. We know what it is like to speak the truth and to say something that, again, is technically true. It may not even be meant to deceive. But an important question to ask is who benefits? Who benefits from me saying this thing this way at this time? You see, Paul doesn't let us off the hook and neither does Jesus just to say the truth. The unvarnished truth all the time to point out everything that's wrong in the world because truth without love leads to destruction. Truth without love is judgment. But truth with love is commitment that builds things up and edifies. So here's your litmus test. You find yourself becoming aware of a truth that needs to be told. You have realized you need to put off the the wrong tone, not say it sarcastically. You need to find the right time to say it. And then the question is, are you ready to go? Will it be truth and love when it comes out of you? And what Paul is saying here too is not necessarily Pay attention to your own heart and make the move when you, are, uh, when you are motivated to participate in God's work of redemption in the world rather than to achieve one of your own purposes. To speak the truth with loving commitment. And that's where we get this phrase. Uh, this was a big one for me when I came a- across it. In your anger, do not sin. Uh, I have known anger all of my life. But I'm not sure I could have ever pointed to a time where I was angry and did not sin. But over the last few years, God has been leading me. And so I was that all truth, no love kind of a guy. And then realizing that there is a way to speak truth, even truth that represents God's heart of anger towards sin and brokenness in myself and the world around us. It is possible to be confrontational in a loving, purifying hopeful building up kind of way, to be angry and to address things, but without losing love in the process, truth with loving commitment. We know we're speaking the truth in love when it does not deceive and when it builds up the people around us. So that's sort of the practices, the things to take on, the lies, manipulations, deceits, and even the silence, the passive aggression, the not saying things, some key indicators to look at and see what does my, uh, what does my practice look like? And again, Jesus says that the, the things that come out of your mouth have the power to defile you or to root you more deeply. When you entertain, you, know, you might be full of Jesus on the inside, but if what comes out of you is only half Jesus, then that other half is going to have a detrimental effect because you are giving witness to the things that you say and that you practice as well as the people around you. And so we want to be in that place where we're not just concerned about our practice, but the way the practice affects us, and also the diagnostic piece of what does it really show me about God's truth and grace, his truth and love? Have I internalized the gospel? Where else do I need to internalize the gospel to tell a bigger story of truth and love? So we might be tempted here to fall on one side or the other, to look at the practices and see the stakes of them and say, you know, the best thing to do is um, to over-explain things or the best thing to do is just choose to sort of like check out and I'm just not going to say things till I know I can say them in the right way. It's estimated that each person speaks somewhere between 7,000 and 16,000 words every day. And, of course, we know that Georgia Bulldog fans and vegans do way more than that. (laughs) But Proverbs tells us that both in keeping silent as well as multiplying our words, that in each of these cases, sin may multiply. So it's kind of like we're trapped and there's not really a way out on either side. If I refrain from speaking, sin may multiply. God might have sent me to be the only one to bring this thing up because of what he's done in my heart to be able to see that something isn't in line with God's heart. It's out of the divine center. Or I I, I might, uh, I don't know where I was going with the rest of that. (laughs) On the other side, uh, multiplying words and trying to over-explain and fix, and maybe if we just get it right, opening our mouths without knowing where the sentence is going to end up. So if the practice is sort of that there's a lot of conditions on both sides that look and say, "Mm, here's some ways that that can fall apart, then what are we left with? And there's a a verse that follows the verses that we have here. At the end of chapter 4, Paul, who's talked about truth and love and unity over and over again in the whole chapter, he gets to the end and he says, this is your motivation, this is your fuel, this is the source out of which these things become possible. To love one another as Christ has loved you. There are three things that kind of universally we know that humans are designed for. We need these three things, and the three things are approval, power, and security. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, exists eternally, and with one another, they have perfect approval. They have perfect, infinite power, and they have perfect security in their alignment and unity together. When God creates the world in his image, he makes us to be a people who can experience those divine attributes, can be fueled and driven by them as well, to experience approval, to exercise power, and to enjoy and find safety and security. The problem is that we enter into worlds and systems, and we believe and practice stories where these things are not ours perfectly. You all know what it's like to feel a lack of approval, to feel empty of agency, no hope to do anything, no power at at the hand. You know what it's like to experience insecurity. And the gospel points out to us that as long as we are in need of these three things, as long as these deep needs and felt needs are not satisfied, our actions, our words, our attitudes will flow out of that emptiness. The approval seeking lies we recognize by lying on our resume, lying about who we are or what we've done, inflating, exaggerating the political lies we talked about, trying to fill the inner emptiness by maintaining some sense of approval or shaping our reputation with other people. And it's not just in the things that we say, but when we choose not to say something out of fear of disappointment, conflict, jeopardizing our relationships. The second category of lies, power-seeking lies, where we fabricate, shade, uh, do things in order to sort of gain leverage and advantage, manipulate or exploit others, so that then we can use their energy, their power for our own discretion. Consolidating power with the people around us to fill the emptiness of power and agency. So this can be something like always needing other people to affirm or, uh, or this can be something like always uh, needing other people to believe your version of the story. To rally people around you in support to see things your way. The third category here, security seeking lies when we avoid accountability and scrutiny, when we avoid places where we might need to pay people back or do hard work to improve a situation, when we play dead or hide to throw people off the scent to get them to move beyond so we can restore some sense of security and control. Again, passive aggression, pretending to go along, performing. When we have inner emptiness at our core, when the story that we tell ourselves is sort of a half-truth about the conditions of the world, the work of God, what, what I can trust in other people or in myself, when that is what's inside of us, you can see what comes out in the lies or the stories that we tell or the things we choose not to say. But there's another way that God offers us. To root ourselves in the divine center. To abide and remain with Jesus so that we can bear much fruit. What Tim Keller points out in this passage, to love and forgive and to tell the truth in love because that is what God has done for us. The quintessential example of this is the truth of God in the story of the, te- of the Bible, giving witness to the sin and brokenness that's around us, the inner emptiness that we perpetuate and practice and cultivate in the world, the destruction and death that we bring. But also the love of God, that God is doing something about it, that he has not left us to fix or change it on our own. And if we want to see the truth and love perfectly, we must look to the cross of Christ to see that God sees our need more than than we could ever dare look at. We can't face these things if we have no solution. The best we can do is pretend or ignore them, walk away or lie about them. But if God has done something about them in the cross, then we can acknowledge them. We can talk about the inner emptiness that we've experienced in this world that drives us and controls us. But we can also tell the story about the hope of the cross, the commitment of God to patiently walk with us and shape us into his likeness over time. It is what comes out of a mouth that defiles. What comes out of our mouths, the truth, the love, the silence, the messages and scripts and half-truths, all of that shows us where we've internalized the gospel and places where we need to receive it more. Paying attention to those words is a way that we practice. But what pra- we practice is getting back to his heart and the cross to see the fullness of the truth. That things are more complicated than we would imagine. But his solution is is equally complicated but our part is simple to plunge ourselves into him to cast a look upon him to meet the lies that we experience around us and inside of us with the truth of the gospel our practice for this week is for those who <clears throat> who sort of navigate the world refraining from speaking truth in love to pay attention to your heart and your motivation about what's preventing you from saying something if it's true? And how can the truth and love of Jesus create courage to participate in his work of redemption to speak truth and love in the world? And for those of us who don't practice an economy of words and, and who are well over that 1600 mark, for us to take time to pause and reflect and say, why am I motivated to correct, to speak? What am I trying to gain? And is it something that I've already got in Jesus? The practices are a way that we root ourselves back more deeply in him, that the fruit would come out and astound us when we do bear much good fruit his likeness and transformation, the new self being knit together with God, ourselves, and with one another.